It's colder than it needs to be out there, Mark. It sure is. This whole in like a lion, out like a lamb is actually complete bullshit. Mm. Because it's, <laughs> not, it's kind yeah. of like in like a lion, out like a tiger. Um, <laughs> you know, baseball season's going to start and it's going to be snowing. Yeah, that's right. As it usually does. Uh, the Cubs usually have one or two snow days towards the beginning of the season. Well, we're nice and toasty inside here. Hello, Booth Wonners. Thanks for tuning in to another exhilarating episode of our podcast celebrating the art of lively conversation and exploring the cultural landscape in Chicago and beyond. I'm your host, Gary Zabinski. And my co-host, Frank, is judging Illinois State speech drama competitions today, downstate in Peoria, Illinois. Will it play in Peoria? Uh, well, well, we'll find out. He's been doing this for many years, of course, and it's one of his true loves. I'll be happy to have him back on our next episode, and I'll bet he'll have a story or two to relate about his experiences down there. I am pleased to have in the booth with me today our old friend Mark Larson, who listeners of this program will remember from episode 62 last summer in late July. Mark, I'll remind people, is an educator and writer living right here in Evanston. He's an oral historian with a collection of interviews about America in a project called American Stories Continuum, which is a marvelous, marvelous collection of stories. And most currently, wrapping up his work on, and can I say that honestly, Mark, are you wrapping up your work on? Uh, hey, actually, <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> there are lots of, lots of ways to express ter- turning or um, wrapping it up. Yes. And I've turned in the most recent version so we'll put it that way. Well, I'll tell people it's wrapping up his work. He's turned in his most recent version <laughs> of Ensemble Chicago, The Making of a Theater Town, an oral biography. To date, he has interviewed, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, uh, over 320 people yes, um, in, yes. in the book. Uh, this book, it aims to capture in a mosaic of voices the ensemble aesthetic the restless spirit, daring commitment to invention, risk, new works, and one another that's shaped and continues to propel the artist of Chicago's theater community. Mm-hmm. Very exciting. I cannot wait. As I said, back in July, I'm still mm. <laughs> on pins and needles waiting to read it. So how is it coming along for you? Well, you're catching me at an interesting time because just this past Monday, I met a deadline that, that I needed to meet, which was to turn in everything I have, and it's a lot, and it needs to be edited down. So that got turned in, which is a kind of a monumental moment for me. It's after all this time. Since that time, though, this is what keeps happening. I got an interview with Tracy Letts lined up and hadn't anticipated it. So I didn't really have much about August Osage County in the book, and I had uh, interviews with all the other cast me- with the cast members and so forth. I thought I was ready to go with that. It wasn't clicking. Tracy suddenly comes through, and now I'm working on that chapter. That's why it's hard to say <laughs> I've turned it in and I'm done. It's, it's, just, it's a never-ending project. It's a never-ending story. You know, a, really a never-ending story, for sure. Not only is there a past and a present to cover, but the future is you know tomorrow. Right. Uh, the, right. Who knows what could be happening tomorrow? I heard a rumor that you actually sat down with uh, Julie Louis-Dreyfus Yesterday. recently. Yes. Yesterday. Yes. Yeah. How did that go? That was wonderful. Actually, she's um, got Chicago roots, of course. She's got strong uh, Chicago roots and has a very strong feeling about Chicago, too. Gets sentimental thinking about it. And when I first started talking to her, I said, I'm so pleased to get you because I really wanted to have you in this chapter. And she said, well, I hope to be in the, in the chapter because that was a meaningful time for me. So it, it was very much a formative time for her, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. She went to Northwestern for, went to Northwestern. Mm-hmm. for, uh, for school, and uh, she uh, did some Second City work here, I assume? Very little, about six months. Hmm. She was in the touring company out at Chateau Louise. But really, she was involved in that group uh, Practical Theater Company with her now husband, Brad, uh, right. Brad Hall, right. and a group of others uh, that all met at Northwestern. And they created this improvisational group that then got a little space on Howard Street, little tiny former shoe store, I think, yeah. and then went to Second City. And very quickly, SNL picked them up, four of them. 
All four of them, yeah. Four, yeah, all at once. Yeah, that was that was quite the coup. Yeah, <laughs> it's just really. Right. I'm sure that was a great day in their lives. <laughs> I'd like to read something that Tracy Letts has said to you in your book, Ensemble Chicago: The Making of a Theater Town. The title is actually Ensemble: An Oral History of Chicago Theater. So you've it's, changed it's it a little bit. Yes, you've it's, simplified it's it. Yeah. Was this a suggestion from your publisher? It, it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, thought, it, I think so. it still works. Yeah. It, it still tells the story uh, in a nutshell. Uh, Tracy Letts, the playwright and actor, the Tony winner for August Osage County and a bunch of other shows that he has written. In fact, we saw the minutes a couple of months ago here at Steppenwolf. He said, I was a broke ass actor until I was 42 years old. I had written a couple of plays with some cultish success, but all of it small theater success. Killer Joe, for instance, uh, one of his very first plays, has never played a theater larger than 100 seats that I know of. <laughs> it's a small play, of mm. course, and it, it does work best in a kind of a tight, intimate setting, for sure. So that doesn't really surprise me. Well, other than on the West End, of course, where it was in a larger theater. So I had never made any money until August Osage County, he says. I was stringing along from job to job, trying to stay afloat. I'm not bitter about that. I was having the time of my life. I, I bet you've heard that from a number of uh, people that you've interviewed. People look back on those times with such affection and such appreciation. Yeah, absolutely. Even though they were struggling and it was hard and they had to live four to an apartment. In in some ways, that's the fun part of it, in a way. So we are looking through many filters of decades of time and and now success, you know, at those those days. So it's easier to romanticize it. But I do hear that quite a bit. I've loved what I've done, uh, Let's goes on to say, but it's weird to suddenly be, quote, the man. I was always struggling for 42 years, and suddenly the last 10 years I've been a different thing because of the success of August. I don't know that I've completely figured that out yet, figured out how to conduct myself. When you're talking to a number of people who have become rather famous uh, on, from the Chicago theater scene and have catapulted themselves into Hollywood and movies and television. Uh, Several come to mind. Gary Sinise comes to mind. Uh, William Peterson comes to mind. Tracy Letts, of course. Uh, Do you find them to be a little confused about their fame, that they weren't sure that they were ever going to be famous, and now that they are, they're trying to deal with that on a daily basis? Julie Louis-Dreyfus, for instance. When she actually became famous pretty quickly, she she was like 20 or 21 when SNL picked her up. So it, it happened fast, and she really wanted it, she said. Her, her husband, Brad Hall, was more ambivalent. He wanted to sort of keep the company going in Chicago. And when SNL asked them, said, we'd like you to come to New York, and we need to know right now, and it would be next week. It was literally like that. Mm. And Brad said, can we think about it? Julia, on the other hand, was ready to go because she said she loved SNL when she was a kid. So that was a big deal to her. So it happened fast for her. There are others, though, that it really is kind of surprising to them, and they don't feel any different. We see the persona. We see them on the screen or we see them on the stage. We see them on talk shows. And there's a persona there, and they seem like they're in kind of a different strata from the rest of us. I loved the last line of what, what Tracy said. He said, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to behave. What does yeah. this require of me now? I don't yeah. know how to react to that. Yeah. It, it might interest you to know what prompted that response was I asked him, I, I said something about that I had sat at, we were at the front bar at Steppenwolf, and I said, I sat at this table with another playwright a younger playwright, who told me he was so excited when Tracy Letts would check in on him. And I said, do you feel that responsibility, you know, to a younger generation and to people who who admire you? And that was the response to that. Wow. How do I behave? Who is this new me? You sat down with actor Michael Shannon when uh, he was in town, and you asked him, when you were starting out, was fame and fortune something you thought about? I'd like to have you read his answer to us. Uh, I assume that this quote is going to be part of your book. 
Yes, this is this is from the book, and I'm, I'm not going to do a Michael Shannon impression. Okay. Though so everybody sure you talk to who knows him does. Does yeah. one. Does, yeah. Really? Yeah. This is what Michael Shannon said. My question was, when you were starting out, uh, was fame or fortune something that you were thinking about? And he said, no, no. I had a Peter Pan attitude about it. I didn't think about growing up. People would say they're going to try to make it to the big time or whatever. And to me, that always seemed like a bad idea. I didn't ever want to leave Chicago. He says this. Yes. Yeah. I didn't think I would leave. I didn't think about the future very much. I tried to think about it as little as possible because I was kind of a misfit. When I was young, I knew that I was not going to have a conventional life. Just wasn't comfortable with the notion of going through the same steps as other people seemed to be going through. And then he said, the most important thing to me every day was that night's performance. Everything revolved around that until that happened. Then the farthest I would look was into the future was tomorrow night's performance. People like my teacher, Jane Brody, would say, you're going to be something, kid. And I'd be like, well, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I might not even be interested in finding out. And it was an authentic response, I thought. I follow that in the book with something that just happened recently. You guys are probably aware of it. The night of the Oscars, Michael Shannon was in a movie, played a, a strong supporting role in Shape of Water. Yes. Which won Best Picture, won Best Director. A very strong supporting role. Yeah. Very, yes. Yeah. And as you know, the cast then gathers behind the director. But Mike Shannon was not there. He was in Chicago because a play he had directed at a Red Orchid, an 88-seat theater, had just closed that night, and he wanted to be there with his cast and with his friends. Somebody just took a telephone snapshot of him sitting in the uh, Old Town Alehouse watching the awards on the television, which apparently was on mute. The Old Town Alehouse is right around the corner right from around the, the corner Red from... Orchid Theater, yeah. uh, which is a theater that Michael Shannon co-founded some years ago, and he still works there and performs there. Yeah, his play was a reimagining of An Enemy of the People, the old Ibsen play, which I'm going to talk about in a few moments as well. But I've seen that snapshot of him sitting at the end of the bar with a beer in hand, watching on this old colored TV that sits up in the corner watching the Oscars. Uh, Quite something, and quite dedicated to his Chicago roots. If this is any indication of what the rest of the book is going to be like, again, I couldn't be more excited. Let's talk about this enemy of the people for a second. I went to, with my producer, the latest Goodman Theater production of An Enemy of the People by Henrik Gibson, and this is adapted and directed by Robert Falls, the artistic director there. He wrote this adaptation. It's a cool adaptation. It's very timely. He uses phrases like, fake facts. You're all just dogs following blindly. It's very, very politically sharp and very much of the time. Great cast, wonderful people throughout. And at the beginning of the second act, uh, well, their second act, I think it's the uh, top of the third act of the play, where there is the crowd scene at the big hearing where he's supposed to explain himself and they're going to victimize him over his allegations of the water in the spas being poisoned. Uh, They bring on at least 40 more actors, and these are non-equity actors that they're paying a certain small sum, a little stipend, to show up every night, put on these period costumes, drag a chair on stage, and be part of this giant crowd scene. (laughs) The curtain goes up, and you've been dealing with three, four characters on stage at a time, mostly two characters on stage at a time. Suddenly that curtain rises on that second act, and the stage is just jam-packed with people. 40 doesn't seem like a lot. I think it's a minimum of 40 that they're looking for every night. It doesn't seem like a lot, but believe me, when you haven't seen it for an hour and 20 minutes and suddenly the spectacle hits you, it was awe-inspiring. The audience actually gasped. Mm. And there are a lot of lines mm. during the, uh, that hearing coming from the main character, Thomas Stockman. 
Dr. Thomas Stockman is the lead character in the play. And he very much goes at them in a political way. It's not a very veiled attempt to make a strong comment on this era of Trump. Bob Falls has done quite an excellent job <laughs> adapting uh, this Ibsen play. Now, the play runs through, let me get this absolutely correct, through April 15th, so you still got plenty of time to go see it. I highly recommend it. The set is very cool. Again, the cast is uh, really terrific from top to bottom. I wanted to touch upon something else, Mark. I do want to say something about our last episode. We had a young man named uh, Javen Ulambayer on, and he is a Mongolian descent. Uh, he is a circus performer. His uh, expertise is on the straps, canvas or canvas and nylon straps that he does twists and turns. You've probably seen this oh, kind yeah. of act mm -hmm. on Cirque du Soleil or on television. Well, ironically and tragically ironic, a Cirque du Soleil performer on a show in Tampa, Florida last weekend, a show called Volta, an aerial straps performer took a devastating and ultimately fatal turn, resulting in a seasoned performer's falling onto the stage. The acrobat died in the hospital shortly after the accident. It's tragic and sad. It does point out the inherent danger of these circus acts, and it made me appreciate Javen's talent, ability, courage, daring. I mean, they call it the daring young man on the flying trapeze for a very good reason. The aerialist was uh, revealed to be Jan Arnaud, according to a uh, since-deleted video of the incident. Arnaud was swinging in the air when he lost his grip and he fell, uh, landing unfortunately head first. Our thoughts and condolences go out to his family and friends. During this difficult time, he had a wife and two daughters. Hmm. The manuscript that you're working from must be about the size of the Old English Dictionary by now. It's embarrassingly large. <laughs> I, um, I recently printed it out just because I wanted to look at it in hard copy and shift things around. And when you're working on a computer, you're just looking at less than a page. And it is just too big. It just, it's very large right now. I originally turned in 1,300 pages, wow. but I got it down to something like 1,100. But that's where we're going to be doing some editing. Yeah, <laughs> that's where a publisher comes in. But it's also more compressed, too, when it's in a book form. We're not talking about 1,100-page book. But. Right. Do you get to the theater often? Speaking of going mm -hmm. to the Goodman, do you get to the theater often? I know you're writing a lot and interviewing a lot of people. What have you seen lately? Where have you been? Traitor, uh, the play that you just mentioned that um, was at Red Orchid, at Red that Orchid. Michael, Michael Shannon directed. May I say something about the, that crowd scene? By all means. Here's this small theater, 88 seats in this theater, and they were able to get an entire kitchen living room set into this with astonishing detail, plus a little cabaret scene, a coffee shop scene. But for that scene, that town hall scene, the audience leaves the theater and heads up Well Street to the next storefront, which was a kind of gallery, and it's set up like a town hall. And Michael Shannon directed this in the most naturalistic way. It was profound and had the same effect that Bob Fall's production, which I mm. haven't seen yet, has, that there were all these plants in the audience then. So you're sitting on folding chairs facing a table. People are milling about trying to get this meeting going, and it just builds and it builds and it builds where you don't even, you don't know who's a plant and suddenly you feel like you're part of this crowd that is yelling back and participating. Did it, audience members take it upon themselves to yell back? You, you, who, it's hard to tell. It's, it's hard. To, yeah, cool. They, but they were all planted there. They were yelling back at the Goodman. They were, were they? they were. There were uh, lots of comments coming from the audience because you, they, could, they could feel and sense how politically sharp and on target this was. And there was some spontaneous applause. Mm. There were people gasping again. There were people shouting out like, yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yes, <laughs> yes, you tell them, things like that. It was really something. But this going to another experience, another environment for a scene is really incredible. See, that's what's in, it's incredible because you are in it. You are completely immersed in it. And so yelling is coming from behind you and in front of you. And it just builds and builds and builds to this crescendo that yeah. was brilliantly done. From there then, 
you return to the theater, and the Dr. Stockman, it, he's not called that there, but the, the, that character and his family, they're sitting in, the, in their house. So as you come back from intermission in there, they're already seated and they've come from the meeting. It was brilliantly done. You and I were at something together last night. I just found out this morning. <laughs> That's right. I did not see you there, but we went uh, and saw the same play. We were at the, the local Northlight Theater Company's production of The Beauty Queen of Lenan by Martin McDonough, one of his early plays. He was quite young when he first wrote this. This was directed by B.J. Jones, again at the Northlight. What did you think of last night's performance? It's hard to know what to think about it. There's so many things going on there. And the playwright is really playing with your emotions and your perception of what's real and what's not real. Not to mention incredible shifting moods from great happiness. And there's a really sexy scene where this woman is so happy. Yeah. And then it shifts to such a, a brutal kind. Well, I shouldn't say anything your audience for your audience, but there's a brutalness to it too, and the shifts are remarkably quick. I thought Kate Fry, who I, I adore and everything I see her in, was phenomenal in this and so powerful. You just could not stop watching her, and and tracing that character's emotional journey in this thing. She's a real pro. We've seen her in a number of things, and she was working hard last night uh, in this play. It's, it's quite the demanding role. Uh, I don't know if many of our listeners know this play, The Beauty Queen of Linan, but she's pretty much on stage the entire time. It's quite the play to carry. I felt that they did a wonderful job with this with this script, and it's a beautiful, beautiful script. I think that they missed a little bit out on more of the comedy of the piece, especially early on. I think that relationship between Maureen and her mother, Mag, could have been more cruelly funny, to the point where later on in the play, when things develop and situations occur that put them in real, real conflict, that could have been sharper. I thought, as you say, Kate Fry, she's a terrific actress. I think she might have been slightly miscast in this piece. A certain vulnerability, I think, may have been missing from her performance, which might have led a little bit more towards our mm, sympathy for her, more empathy for her, especially towards the end of, of the play and what transpires. I don't want to give anything away to our audience because I, I highly recommend going to see this production, by the way. I enjoyed it. I just have those kind of tiny little quibbles. I want to ask you something about the Golden Apple Awards. Tell us what the Golden Apple Awards are. Mm, this is out of left field. All of a sudden, <laughs> a different part of my life. Yeah. The Golden Apple Awards have been around since, I think, 1985. It was started by a guy named Mike Koldyke to honor teachers because he and his wife, speaking of the Oscars, were watching the uh, Oscars one night, and he said, I, I don't know why there isn't such an event for teachers. So he teamed up with WTTW here in Chicago and arranged for uh, a huge ceremony. Everybody dresses up in tuxes. It's televised every year. And they honor 10 teachers every year for excellence in teaching. They're Is this a national uh, competition? The whole Chicago area. The and Chicago the, and the area, counties. I see. Out of all the nominations, they get down to 10, and those are awarded in a, a big event. And then they get uh, a half a year's sabbatical at Northwestern. Um, as, as one of the prizes right. for winning this award. Yeah. Well, I understand that you're going to be teaching a class or a course to some of these Golden Apple winners? Yeah, all 10. The way it works is they can take whatever they want in the entire Northwestern catalog. Which you're is, kidding. No, it's just... You could take molecular biology. If you or want. Could sit in on an acting <laughs> class. People do that. Music. Or people take dance. Um, they, whatever it is that they're a really... A full semester. In, a full semester of anything that you want. Anything you want. And it's all free, and they're continuing to get paid, too. The Golden Apple Foundation pays for the... Uh, pays their salary during that yes. semester while yeah. they're going to school. Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to be teaching? There's a seminar that 
they all take. Everybody sort of goes off and takes their own thing. And then there's a seminar that I'm going to be teaching where they all gather once a week. And it's really, it's, it's sort of like a, remember like a tutorial where you'd come up with your own topic and investigate it? But this is tenfold. It's ten people agreeing on what do we really want to investigate together. And then that's what we head into. Wow. So they come up with a topic, and then it'll be my job to kind of find an author or somebody to, to come in and find a way to investigate it. So it's very improvisational, actually. How I, exciting. I wish fun. I could sit in on that. I, but I'm unfortunately not a teacher, so I don't have any hope of winning a Golden Apple Award. But uh, perhaps someone will let me sit in on your class. I wanted to uh, quote something that I read off your website that is apropos to our podcast uh, and myself in some ways. You said, the idea of talking to people about their work and lives, something I had always done as a way of being, seemed for the first time like an art form itself. Mm -hmm. Can you expand on that a little bit? I have always talked to people and asked them questions throughout my life. And I've, I came to realize it's, my, it's, it's a function of my shyness. And reticence, and it's made it much more comfortable in a in a social situation to just keep asking questions. Uh -huh. And I've heard photographers talk about that they feel much more bold behind their camera, and I, I feel like the questions kind of fill in that same role. And I've always done that. You're saying that it's maybe an offshoot of your shyness. It, it's a it way to kind of seated deflect there. deflect the attention away from yourself. Yeah. But then I saw Studs Terkel. I sat in a in WFMT studios with him once with his guest and watched that unfold and it was just astonishing to me. Talk about making talking to other people an art form. Thank you for mentioning Studs. I wanted to tell our listeners that there's more than 5,600 of Studs Terkel's uh, radio interview programs on the Chicago station WFMT and they are about to be released to the public. Not all of them, because I haven't gotten through all of them yet, but the Studs Terkel Radio Archive will launch May 16th of this year. That's the 106th birthday uh, of the late author, activist, and oral historian. Terkel died at the age of 96 in 2008, and the archive will be available at the following website, studsterkel.org. That's S-T-U-D-S-T-E-R-K-E-L. Org. Should be fascinating to listen to those. I've been to WFMT and I've been into their tape library room where they store it's amazing, all these things. It? It's amazing. It, it's just, it's packed from floor to ceiling, wall to wall with tapes and tapes and tapes of all kinds of things. A lot of it is Studs Terkel's interviews. It's interesting to see all his interviews in those old boxes, those cardboard boxes where it's just handwritten Aretha Franklin scrawled on the yeah. side you're right yeah Kurt Vonnegut yeah, yeah. I, I strolled it, through there yeah. you gotta stroll through with your head sort of sideways so that you could read them a little bit but it is like a walk through the 20th century yeah he interviewed everybody not just artists and writers but politicians and activists and all kinds of people. Everybody. He interviewed just about That's, everybody over a period of time. There are tapes of him just getting out his tape recorder and talking to his cab driver on the way to O'Hare. He's got such a range of things. We were talking about going to lots of plays, and you see a lot of things. Uh, I see a lot of things. I, I need to mention something that appeared in the March 19th issue of the New Yorker magazine. The Adventures of an Extreme Theater Goer. This is going to knock you out, Mark. One Wednesday night this winter, Joanne Veneziano. Joanne Veneziano saw Sweeney Todd at the Barrow Street Theater for the 106th time. Oh, my goodness. You would not be wrong to describe her as an extreme theater goer. She is partial to musicals, often taking in nine performances a week if you include cabaret acts. Between 2001 and 2004, she attended 200 productions of Urinetown. I, <laughs> in 2006, it was The Wedding Singer for 170 times. Huh. Not even a good show. <laughs> she probably saw every one of them because it didn't run very long. Right after that closed in 2006, she jumped to Spring Awakening, which she says she saw 533 times. 
Uh, she may hold the record for a contest that doesn't even exist. Cause I, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> Veneziano gives her ages 39 and 10 twelfths. <laughs> <laughs> She typically leaves her house in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey at 6 a.m. for her accounting job in Yonkers and returns at around midnight after stopping in New York on the way home to see a show or two. The nearly two-hour commute involves a bus, a subway, and a train. The first Broadway show she ever saw was Les Mis with a ticket that was given to her as a gift when she was 14. This is something that boggles the mind. I've seen Les Mis probably eight or nine times because I love the show. I've seen it in touring companies and here in Chicago and in New York. But this, as I said, is a record that I'm not sure anybody wants to compete with. Uh, did the article provide any insight into why she does What's driving her? It's her absolute love of musicals. She fell mm. in love at a very young age, and now she just can't stay away. I suppose once you've seen all the things that are playing on Broadway once through, if you want to continue your obsession, mm -hmm. can I call it that, or your habit, you've got to go back to things over and over and over again. Friend of the show and longtime listener Nancy Needles says, uh, I'm thinking that she's like a hoarder of shows. That's like, oh, that's a wonderful phrase. She probably yeah. doesn't like her food to touch either, Nancy <laughs> says. Uh, I don't see, oh, the article goes on to say that she spends a considerable amount of her salary, no surprise, yeah. on seeing shows. And she always, by the way, sits in the front row. Oh my goodness. And she will walk up to the box office and beg, borrow, and steal, or barter and steal, I guess, to try to sit in the front row. She sits in the front cabaret chair at uh, Sweeney Todd at the Barrow Street because it's done in a cabaret style. They say she allocates uh, up to $20,000 a year of her salary, but the math doesn't make sense. I don't see, Nancy says, how allocating $20,000 a year for tickets could possibly cover the quantity she sees. I think she is so strangely interesting but probably wouldn't be a very good friend <laughs> well she's always on a bus a yeah, train right. or in, in, the front row. In, the, in the front row joanne veneziano uh if you run into her at a broadway musical say hello and tell her you heard about her uh, on booth one <laughs> that's a remarkable story yeah i'm going to switch gears here a little bit how do you think the current political scene how do you think that's being reflected on stage in this climate? We talked a little bit about an enemy of the people, and I mentioned that Bob Falls really twisted and turned this adaptation in order to reflect what's been happening on uh, the front pages uh, for the last couple of years. Uh, do you think that there's enough theatrical commentary going on prompting more conversation, which, frankly, some people would say that's the essence of theater? to provoke conversation and to hold a mirror up to reality. I don't know what enough would be, but I do, I do know that artistic directors and companies are giving a lot of thought to what is our response to this. I think when Trump was first elected, everybody's seasons were already in place. So it's not like, what's our immediate response here? But I do think now they are thinking, I think, enemy of the people. New York, I think, uh, New York Times just did a piece on all the enemy of the peoples that are being done around the country, including mentioned Brett Nevue's play, too, Traitor. And I think people are trying to make that effort, but you also don't want to hit them over the head with it. It's interesting you brought that up because it's been on my mind a lot, too, because I do see a lot, like you do, and I find that everything seems to relate already anyway. There's always something that jumps out at me. And people will, will laugh at something, too, because a turn of phrase from a year or two years ago will get a whole different laugh now. I just posted about this, that I worried, am I obsessing on the political climate? Is that why I'm projecting something onto what I'm watching in the theater? But I found a quote that Barbara Gaines said, I asked Barbara Gaines about 9-11. Barbara Gaines is the longtime artistic director and founder of Chicago Shakespeare Theater, formerly known as Shakespeare Rep. Yeah, I asked her about 9-11, and this is pre-Trump, too. And her response just seemed awfully timely to me, and, and in relation to what you're asking me. But she said, I will tell you something interesting that happened after 9-11. 
I was about to preview Richard II. We had to cancel the first two previews because they wouldn't open Navy, Navy Pier, which is where the theater is. Mm-hmm. Everything was halted. After that, one of the earliest previews was a school audience a high school, of high school students. We had the talk back after the show, and I remember a handsome young man, very tall, with great grace. He said, why did you change Shakespeare's language? And I said, I didn't. Tell me which line you're talking about. He paraphrased the line, quote, and with rainy eyes, meaning crying. And with rainy eyes, write sorrow in the bosom of the earth. He thought I had added that because of 9-11. That was unforgettable to me. I haven't thought about it for many years. But that was the most beautiful moment within that theater. That he would remember and take that line unto his heart and soul and apply it to what has happened in the world at that moment. But we do that, right? She said. It has to relate to now or I'm not interested in it. I have actually a a section on 9-11 and people talking about things that they were doing at that time. And in relation to this quote, Mary Zimmerman talked about the fact that she was about to open Metamorphosis in New York, which she talks about how it's about profound transformation and much of it unwelcome transformation and changes to ourselves. She said that they were, they were about to go into previews, they took a day off, and then they came back to it And it just had this profound impact. A lot of people have written about it since, that seeing metamorphosis, which was already in process and been successful elsewhere, had a whole different meaning after 9-11. I think that's what we're experiencing. I don't think authors and artistic directors and so forth have to find something that's going to beat us over the head with it. I think we're going to find it. Your, Your question is a profound one. Are they doing enough? I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> well, that, but, that's, you know, that, we'll that's know all if, relative. If, if it makes change. Someone you also spoke to is actor Amy Landecker. Oh, yeah. You spoke to her on November 9th, the day after the election in 2016. Mm-hmm. She had been campaigning for Hillary and was devastated by the outcome. She said, I just can't talk today. Mm-hmm. I'll talk to you in three days. But uh, she finally did speak with you, and I'd like to relate what she said. Amy Landecker of Transparent fame. My only concern doing an interview, to be honest, is that I have spontaneously burst into tears in the last 48 hours. Actually, though, I feel so lucky to be part of Transparent. This week's been an absolute epic psychic tragedy for the community that I work in. It feels even more important now than ever to work on a show like Transparent because I feel like the country said no, especially through Mike Pence, to the LGBTQ community. I'm now actually feeling even more like, oh, thank God I have this job because I think I feel like I'm being useful. Yeah. I think a lot of people feel that way. Transparent or, was very popular even before the election, mm-hmm. a very uh, highly watched show. But then it became more relevant after that election, and she goes on to say that very thing. Yeah, I can be useful. Another community tragedy that we're facing these days are the number of school shootings that Mm. have occurred, especially even just this calendar year, worst of which was in Parkland, Florida. Today marks a day when youths all over the country were marching um, in various cities, Washington, D.C., most specifically. Uh, I understand from early reports that there were upwards of 800,000 people in D.C. alone in in protest of our government doing not enough or nothing Mm -hmm. to prohibit the use of firearms in this country or the obtaining of firearms in this country. You saw some of the coverage today. Uh, The young lady from Parkland, her name is Emma Gonzalez. Gonzalez. She gave a presentation or a speech today. Did you see all of that? I was trying to work on my book and have that on in the corner of my eye, and I just was not able to take my eyes off of it. We're in the midst of it now, and so we're still in the afterglow of it, but you do feel this was a historic moment. Something really profound happened today, not just in D.C. You're referring to Emma Gonzalez, who came out and looked at the audience of 800,000 people. Can you imagine? I, I, I was told my wife I couldn't 
give a book report in front of 13 of my classmates at that age. But <laughs> she, with the extraordinary poise, named every single student and adult who had been shot with a little tag about how they will never ride their bike to the corner grocery or whatever, how they will never do this, how they will never do that. And it builds and it builds and it builds one person after another. And then she just stopped. And I've never seen anything like this in my life for the next six minutes, six and a half minutes. She stood there in utter poised silence and stared at the crowd and the place just fell silent and nobody knew quite what to make of it. Tears rolling down her eyes, but she never stopped looking directly forward. And the, the eloquence of that silence was, was breathtaking. I, I think people are going to refer to that as much as they are to all of the kids' speeches. That was indicative of the time that it took the shooter to do this rampage, this six and a half minutes. She did reference then right afterwards, that's how much time it took him. The students, one after another after another, their eloquence and their poise was absolutely breathtaking. And very cinematically, there's the background that says March for Our Lives. Above it then is the white Capitol building. So it's very cinematically stark difference between this extraordinary life and hope and then this pale what we always thought is such a wonderful place. And a lot of them would point to it and say, doing nothing, and point to the Capitol building. It was stunning in a cinematic way, too. Very um, powerful. And one last thing is one poor woman, who had a young girl who had been shot and was recovering, gives this impassioned speech, and you could tell she was in some sort of distress and you thought it was nerves or you thought it was just being passionate. She suddenly turned and vomited onto the floor. And mercifully, all the network cameras turned away from her, and they're panning the audience and so forth. And God bless her. She, once she got her, her poise, she did not run away. She said, I just vomited on international television, and it feels great. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was an inc moments like that are incredible. Yeah. In the freshness of these kids and the hope yeah. of these kids, yeah. it puts everything else to shame. Where can people go to find out more about Ensemble, which <laughs> is now the shortened name yes. of your, your book? Can you give us the website where yeah. you have more information about it at this point? It's ensemble-chicago.org. Dot org. Yeah. There's a list which is now a partial list. I haven't brought it up to date because I've been so busy with the book, but it'll give you a good idea of what's it in It gives there. a good list of the uh, interviewees that mm -hmm. you have spoken to. Well, we look forward to, to the book. There's no easy segue to this, but I did want to mention one other thing that mm -hmm. I went to see. The great actress and two-time Tony winner Patti LuPone did a one-night mm -hmm. appearance at uh, Steppenwolf Theater uh, alongside uh, the pianist and musical theater genius Seth Rudetsky. Mm. Uh, we had gone to see Audra McDonald uh, in the same sort of format show uh, a couple of months ago, a few months ago. It is exactly what it sounds like. She comes out, she tells some stories, Seth interviews her, asks her some questions, she talks about this, and then they spontaneously get up and sing a number. And then they go back and sit down <sighs> in these beautiful. chairs and they talk some more, and then he says, okay, let's play another number. And he started the show by saying... I want you to understand that Patty has no idea what songs we're going to be singing tonight. Not that they haven't rehearsed hundreds of songs, but he kind of makes up the repertoire as the evening is progressing to, you know, based on how it's going and what seems most appropriate to do next. I will say that I've always liked Patty Lapone. I've always enjoyed her performances. She's a bit of an acquired taste in terms of a personality, and she herself <laughs> is the first one to admit that, that she may not be the, the easiest actress to get along with. But her even admitting that endeared me to her even more during this mm. hour and a half performance. She told some incredibly funny backstage stories, and she sang 
all the hits. And when I say all the hits, I'm going to run down a little bit of her set list. She sang, of course, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, which I think was extremely bold because we all have an image of what that Mm. song is, either from seeing the original production or or even more recently, she sang it on the Grammy Awards Mm -hmm. to great acclaim. And they even discussed that. Well, she gets up there and sings just by herself on the Steppenwolf stage uh, on the set of a play that they're doing right now and she was magnificent it was a performance not to be missed Mm. i turned to my seat partner and said well there's something you don't hear every day she also sang some people from gypsy Mm. she sang as long as he needs me from oliver she played nancy in the cameron mcintosh revival of oliver some uh seasons ago she sang don't rain on my parade from funny girl i get a kick out of you from anything goes that was a starring role for her She is currently in rehearsal for a new production of Company on the West End, and she sang Ladies Who Lunch, which is the song she's going to be singing in that show. She sang I Dreamed a Dream from Les Mis. Mm. She's the original Fantine in Les Mis from the London production. She did turn down the Broadway show for various reasons, which she went on to describe in great detail. And then she sang a couple of very strange things. Uh, She sang a song called Invisible from Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, which she also starred in. Not a very long-lived show, but some terrific music. She did Trouble from Music Man. You got Trouble, my friends, right here in River City. That was a huge crowd pleaser. She didn't miss a word. She didn't miss a beat. She didn't miss a nuance. It's not easy to do. And it's not mm-hmm. easy to do. She, and she did it sort of like three quarters of the way through the show when she mm-hmm. wasn't maybe especially fresh. I was astounded by mm-hmm. that. Then they went off and they didn't look like they were going to come back for an encore because they had another show to do in about 45 minutes. They did two performances that same night. But the audience was so crazy that they came back out, and she sang the Paul Anka classic, My Way, uh-huh. which was the perfect yeah, the perfect exclamation yeah. point on a wonderful, wonderful evening. If you ever have a chance to see Patti LuPone by herself, by all means, go. I don't care what your actual yeah. personal preference is about her. You will not be disappointed in her stories. So. That's, a, that's a wonderful format. First time I saw Patti LuPone was in the old St. Nicholas Theater in this tiny little theater that used to be a bakery, and nobody knew who she was, and nobody knew who Peter Weller was, and they barely, except in Chicago, knew who David Mamet was. But it was a reading of The Woods that she and Peter Weller did, and then Mamet wanted to hear what the audience thought of it and so forth. She referenced that during the You're evening. Kidding. She said, I, what did I, she say? She said, I have Chicago roots. <laughs> and she mentioned having uh, done uh, The Woods by David Mamet oh, here goodness. at the St. Nicholas Theater. It was really sort of mostly an aside. Yeah. And then she went on to something else. But she plopped that out there, and you could <laughs> just feel people falling more and more in love with her <laughs> each time she yeah. endeared herself to the audience. Oh, it was really, really quite. It was that. really, really quite something. Well, Mark, we usually end our episodes with, as you know, our kiss of death segment, which is the celebration of someone's life that has recently passed. Today, we're going to talk about Russ Solomon. Are you a music lover? Mm Mm-hmm. Do you recall going to music stores when you were younger, when there were such a thing as music stores where you could buy records and cassette tapes and Mm -hmm. going through the stacks and looking for things? I don't know if you're a jazz person or if you're a show tunes person. (laughs) More of a show tunes person. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. I'd go, I'd head straight to the show tunes and soundtracks to see, to see what I could see. Well, talk about the perfect coda. Tower Records. You recall Tower Records. Sure do. Founder Russ Solomon died with a drink in his hand and a smart aleck remark on his lips. The swashbuckling visionary entrepreneur who built a global retailing empire and the most famous company in Sacramento history has passed away. Solomon was watching, get this, the Academy Awards that Sunday night in his Sacramento area home when he was stricken by a heart attack. Ironically, he was giving his opinion of what someone was wearing that he thought was ugly, and then he asked his wife, Patty, to refill his whiskey. When she returned, 
he had died. Mm. Oh, <laughs> oh, man. I, I don't yeah. know. I might want to go that way. Yeah. I, I can think of worse <laughs> ways to go. Russ Solomon was the guiding force behind Tower, the chain that revolutionized music retailing until it was swamped by iPods, big box stores, and other dramatic changes in the industry. It had long aisles, and they were packed with bins containing thousands of titles of every imaginable genre. My good friend and former co-host on this show, Roscoe, is fond of telling stories about going to the Tower Records down here on Broadway in Lincoln Park for just hours and hours and hours and just hanging out there looking at the albums. He's got a great appreciation for a large range of musical styles. Hanging out at Tower Records was one of the joys of his youth. The stores stayed open late and became evening hangouts. The towers on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles and Broadway in New York's Greenwich Village were landmarks in their own right. Solomon was a pioneer who was admired by employees and competitors alike. He made Tower a $1 billion, get that, a $1 billion a year business stretching from Boston to Bogota, Colombia. He operated on a philosophy that was obvious to him but extraordinary for its day. Build big stores and pack them with as much music as possible. The company eventually branched into books and video. Rival chains, of course, sprung up, uh, borrowing heavily from Solomon's notion that big was beautiful. That was one of his quotes. He was probably the inventor of the mega store. But in the late 1990s and early 2000s, Tower was overwhelmed by other big box competitors, Amazon.com and digital downloading, and uh, just wasn't a kind of a business model that could make it. Uh, the company had also overexpanded and was partly to blame for its downfall. We borrowed so much money, Solomon said in later years, that it was unsustainable. Russ Solomon, founder of Tower Records, dies at 92 while drinking whiskey and watching the Oscars. 92, not, yeah. not a bad life. Not bad. Yeah. Well, Mark, it's been a pleasure having you back on the show. Pleasure I to be so, here. so appreciate it. And again, I, I sound like a broken record, but I cannot wait for Ensemble to come out in print version so that I can read all of these marvelous interviews that you've taken with people. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank my guest, Mark Larson, for sharing his perspective on the Chicago theater scene and being such an all around fantastic addition to our program. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski saying so long and keep listening. 